Torah and Tea. First of all, today is Parshish Truma, but it's also <coughs> Rosh Chodesh, and it's the first day of Rosh Chodesh Adarishan. This year we treated to two others. There's an interesting idea over here. Always we know that the entire month of Adar is celebrated. The entire month of uh, of Adar. Can I call you back? I'm in the middle of a class. I'll call you back. Bye. Um, the whole month. Hello. It's interesting. When it talks about Purim, uh, in the Megillah, it says the month that was changed around. So we're not only attributing the miracle to one day, we attribute it to the whole month. The month of Ador is sort of the auspicious and a, a, a good month. That's why we say, Mishenichnas Ador Marbim Besimcha. Once Ador enters, then we increase with joy. Well, it's interesting. This year we have two Adors. Basically, we have 60 days of joy. The number of 60 is very significant. What's the number of 60? In Halacha, it's a very significant number. Uh, we usually say that. If you mix in, let's say, something which is not kosher mm. into a kosher, if you have 60 times as much, it becomes nullified. That means 60 has the power to override the non-kosher, and therefore everything can be eaten. Again, the special circumstances, not saying it depends, there's a lot of details. But here's just the point that the joy of 60 days of Purim, the day of 60 days of Adars, Adar Rishon, Adar Sheni, there's 60 days. So any negativity, any bad, any difficulties, everything gets nullified in the Simcha because we have 60 mm-hmm. days of Simcha. And 60 is bottle, we call it bottle Bishishim. It's nullified within 60. So, so Hashem should help that all issues that we face personally and or as a community or as a Klal Yisrael, as a Jewish people or as humanity in general, that it should all be nullified in the Simcha, which means we should have real true joy. And of course, the real joy is uh, the coming of Mashiach. You know that when Haman was trying to find he didn't just want to kill the Jews. He wanted to find a good month. He wanted to find a good a good day, a good month. He threw two lotteries. He threw one lottery for the month separately. And then he threw a separate lottery for the days. And then he combined it, the lottery of the month and the lottery of the day. So the lottery of the day came out the 13th. The lottery of the month came out Ador. So he made it the 13th of Ador. That's when he made his decree. But the Talmud says that when the lottery came out on the month of Ador, 
Haman was very happy. He was very, he was very joyful. Why? He says, ah, that's a perfect month that I can't get back at the Jewish people. I'll be successful. Why did he think that Ador was so special? Because he figured out, or he knew, that Moshe Rabbeinu died in the month of Ador. We know Zion Ador is the day that Moshe Rabbeinu passed away. Which, by the way, that's also the same day that my father, of blessed memory, Nochem ben Svihirsh, he passed away on the seventh day of Ador, coming up next week, so we might as well dedicate the class to his memory as well. Um, so, and the Kiddush, Mr. Shem, will give in Shabbos in his memory this, this, this week in Shul. Um, so, he was happy because he thought, oh, I could be successful because uh, Moshe Rabbeinu died. That's a bad sign for the Jews. Moshe Rabbeinu is their leader. And if he dies in that month, that's bad for them. But the Gemara said, not so fast. He made a mistake. He miscalculated. He didn't realize that Moshe was actually born in Ador as well. It says that Moshe Rabbeinu was born and he passed away on the exact day. The seventh of Adar is when he was born. And the seventh of Adar is when he passed away. And the Gemara says that the day of birth has enough merit that it can wipe away the day of bath. So there's nothing bad about Adar. Anyways, because Haman was looking for the month, so that's why we celebrate the month. This year, we have two Adars. We celebrate it for two Adars. And that's why we have 60 days. And it all becomes nullified within this 60. So everything becomes a matter of Simcha. I once heard, you know, on Purim, they like to give Purim Torah, which means this is not exactly 100% logical and makes sense, but it's just for Purim they give Advat Torah. Supposedly on Purim, people are supposed to have a little liquor, a little schnapps, and uh, become a little shikar. So they say things that don't always make full sense. Also, they have the Purim Torah, the Purim Rav, the Purim Torah. So, I once heard, why is it the reason that we celebrate for a whole month, actually, we're saying the whole month of Ador, and this year the two Adors, is because, as the question, if Haman was so evil and he wanted to get rid of all the Jews, so he says he wanted to get rid of all the Jews all in one day. In all of the kingdom of Achashverosh, he wanted to kill all the Jews in one day. But if Haman was such a Jew hater, why would he want to kill everybody in one day? Maybe some people will hide, some people will run away. He should have asked for, you know, a week, a month, more time. Why did he limit himself to one day? And the answer is, because Haman was such a Jew hater, he, in back of his mind, he had a suspicion that he may not succeed. And if he's not going to succeed to harm the Jews, then of course the Jews will make a celebration, as we do, Purim. 
He said, if they're going to celebrate, he says, I'm only going to give them one day to celebrate <laughs> because I don't want to give them more than a day. So therefore, he said, I'm going to destroy them all in one day. So if they celebrate, they should celebrate my downfall. They'll celebrate on one day. Despite him, that's what we say, the whole month that turned around. We're going to celebrate a whole month because he didn't want to allow us for that month. In any event, that's as far as Purim goes. And as far as I... Takanun said in the month of joy... Yes. So why is that? It doesn't extend to that level of uh, joy. There's uh, several things that we don't still do on the month of Ador. We don't say Hallel. We don't say... There. It's it's still a minor holiday. It's a holiday from the rabbis. You know, we go, we do work. It's not the day that it's prohibited. It's, it's only instituted by the rabbis. So right. it doesn't but Rosh Chodesh Adar, we say Hallel. Oh, that's true. But Rosh Chodesh Adar is... Is uh, women don't do work on Rosh Chodesh Adar. That's true also. Yeah. Uh, women don't do work on Rosh Chodesh Adar, on, on any Rosh Chodesh, for that matter. Okay, so let's go back to the subject at hand. And actually, today the second sicha is a very beautiful, has a very beautiful point. So I'll try to be short on the first sicha, and we'll try to get to the second sicha quickly. So this again, this is based on the volume 16, Truma 3. So of course, there is a very, uh, the very first mitzvah uh, about building the Beis HaMikdosh. The verse says, V'asu li mikdosh. Make for me a sanctuary. This is where we know that Hashem wants us to build for Him a structure. The structure First was built in the Mishkan. I'm going to go through a little bit from Emanides. First it was built in the desert. Now over there, it was a portable uh, structure, which means that they used to fold it up, put it together, and they would journey. And when they would stop, they would put it up again. And so they would be. So it was a, a movable, portable sort of sanctuary. Uh, and then eventually, as we'll see in a minute, they upgraded it till it became a base Hamigdosh in Yerushalayim, in, in Jerusalem. On Mount Maria, on the Temple Mount, that's where they built the permanent base Hamigdosh. But first, the verse says like this, Va'asuli Migdash, make for me a sanctuary, make a holy place for me. And then the Torah goes on to tell you exactly what to put in there, uh, the different vessels, we put the Aron, the Ark, and we put the lid, the Kapoiris, with the cherubs, then we put the menorah, we put the Shulchan, and the Mizbeach, and all the various different vessels that went into the Beis HaMikdash. But then the verse immediately says, V'shochanti b'socham, and I will dwell amongst you, so the rabbis actually take note of this wording because if you're going to make a sanctuary, one assumes Hashem says, make for me a sanctuary so I will dwell in that sanctuary because that sanctuary is made for Hashem. But Hashem says, I will dwell amongst you. This means amongst the people. So in general, that would be understood that 
well, the Mishkan was built, the Mikdash is built by the people, so therefore that means I dwell amongst you. But the Medrash says that Bisocham means really within each and every one of you, which basically means that this is a instruction for each and everybody, every person, to actually make a, a sanctuary for Hashem. Because Hashem doesn't just want to rest in that sanctuary. It's b'socham, b'soch kol echad v'echad. That's amongst each one and one. Hashem wants to rest within us. We need to make a place for God to rest. We have to make a sanctuary for God. Now, you notice in this verse it says, Asuli Mikdash. It doesn't see Asuli Mishkan. What's the difference between a Mishkan? Mishkan is more like a resting place, more like a tent, more like a portable. Mikdash, we call it the Beta Mikdash, that's the house. It's a bait. Hashem said, make me a Mikdash. But this is really a verse that encompasses not just the Mishkan, which we're going to read. They built the exactly of the cedar wood, the sockets, and the uh, various different details that they built in the, in the desert. But this is a general command. Make for me a sanctuary, which means this includes all sanctuaries. I want to read from the Rambam. This is from the Rambam in the laws of Beis HaBechira. The Rambam writes over there that it is a positive mitzvah to make or to build a house for Hashem. What's the purpose of that house? That house should be ready to offer karbanot, offer the offerings. And you also celebrate three times a year, everybody does the Aliyah the Regal. And he says, because the verse says, Va'asu li mikdash. That's the verse. Make for me a sanctuary is the verse that tells us that we need to make a place for Hashem to rest in. But the Rambam goes on giving us a little bit of history over here. The Rambam is trying to say that as the Jewish people progressed, until the time they came to the, uh, the final Beis Hamikdash, until it was destroyed, which is in Yerushalayim, the Jewish people were constantly progressing, and they were fulfilling the same mitzvah of building a sanctuary, but in more ways. And the Rambam says like this, that in the Torah, it articulates the Mishkan that Moshe Rabbeinu made. But he says that was a temporary, that was a structure that was only for the duration that they traveled, as well as the Rambam says, as soon as they went over the first stop of the Jews from the desert, they went over the Jordan River, and they came to a place which is called Gilgal. That's the name of the place. In Gilgal, the Jews basically, the, the, the structure of the Mishkan stood there for 14 years. It took seven years for the Jewish people to conquer 
All the inhabitants that lived in Eretz Yisrael, in Eretz Canaan at the time, it took another seven years for them to distribute it amongst all the... Those 14 years, the Mishkan stood in Gilgal, says the Rambam. Once they entered to the land of Israel, they placed the Mishkan of the desert in the Gilgal for the 14 years that they conquered and they divided. After that, huh? Could you repeat what they did um, after they conquered the tribes and, and distributed the land? Distributed, no, so they were there for 14 years. I didn't finish now. What did you say? I'm sorry. So they, they, it took seven and seven, total of 14. It took seven years to conquer all the areas from the inhabitants that were there. And then it took another seven years to distribute it between all the tribes. So for those 14 years, the Mishkan stood in the Gilgal. But in, uh, at that point when they came to the Gilgal, uh, already at that point, they were, it was already an improvement because they didn't have any peace and quiet there because they were fighting. But they had Yehoshua. Yehoshua was a king, right? And they'd already uh, fought against uh, Amalek, as we learned before. So they had they, and they had a, 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 a mikdash. So they fulfilled the building of the mikdash in a better way, in the way, in the sense that now they have a king. But still, they didn't have everything. From there, after the fourteen years. They came to Shiloh. Mm. Shiloh was the next place where they had the Beis Hamikdash. Now over there, they no longer had the Mishkan. What exactly happened with the Mishkan seems in different places. You know, we know, like for example, the Gemara says several places that the Aron, the Ark, was hidden in the trails and the, underneath the Har Habayis, underneath the Temple Mount. Uh, it looks like in some Gemara that not only that, but also all the other vessels were there, also hidden. But we also know that Achashverosh used the vessels, and we know Nebuchadnezzar used the vessels. They were punished for that, taken out when they took captivity. So there's various different things. But whatever the case is, whatever exactly happened with the structure, with the wood, with the actual wood, seems like in some places that that was preserved as well, or... Uh, what happened with the vessels exactly. So these are different uh, subject matters that are discussed in various different places. But they came to Shiloh. Here was a big improvement because over there they built a house made out of stone. It was permanent versus the uh, structure of the... So this is already an improvement on the Asuli Migdash that they made a Migdash and they improved it. But it did not have a cover, a roof. They used the covers that they used to cover the Mishkan. Those were the panels that they made from the various different, from the Rizizim and the Rizchoshi, the various different. They used those uh, panels that they used to cover the Mishkan. That's what they used in Shiloh as well. But no roof over there. And that was a pretty uh, long, relatively speaking, 
And we're talking about 14 years. Over there, it was 369 years this, the, 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 the temple stood in Shiloh. The Beis Hamikdash in Shiloh stood. And there's also other um, halachic considerations. While there is a temple, one is not allowed to make korbanis on Obama. But, but the bottom line for our purposes, this is all an extension of the mitzvah that we learned in the parsha. Make a mikdash, but an improvement, because a permanent structure is an improvement over a temporary structure. And then the Eli Cohen, if you remember the story with Chana and Shmuel, uh, that was Eli was the Cohen over there. Uh, in Shmuel Aleph, the way you read the, the story about how Shmuel was born and how Eli thought that she was drunk. And uh, we read it on Rosh Hashanah. We read the portion and the Haftorah. So after Eli over there, he died. The Plishtim took it over. They decided Eli's sons, Hafni and Pinchas, they didn't follow. Uh, they didn't go on the right path. So eventually that was destroyed. And then there was two uh, more short excursions till they came. The Oroin went in Oved Gas, it was in a separate place, but they came to a place called Noiv. They built a Megdosh. And when Shmuel died, that was also destroyed. They came to Givoin and they built over there a Megdosh. Now, and, and that totaled 57 years. The Rambam doesn't separate how much they were in Noiv, how much in Given, but it totaled. 57 years, so it was relatively short. I mean, if you consider that the Beis Hamikdash stood uh, for 410 years uh, in Yerushalayim, uh, consider that to the Shiloh, which was uh, 369, so it wasn't really, it was uh, not that much longer than uh, than, uh, than the one in uh, in Shiloh, but so that was, so, but of course, the finally their uh, resting place, we came to the internal home, that's the home, and that's the uh, Beis Hamikdash, and all this, as Rebbe explains, is all part of the mitzvah of the Mikdash Shachantimus, this is part of the making of the Mikdash, and they also had all the other qualifications that they needed, they had a king over there, they had uh erased Amalek, but yet there was constantly improvements until the Migdash reached its ultimate level in which it was a, a, a base alum in, in the uh, base Amigdash in Yerushalayim. Let's do Is for... Givon Gibeon in English? G-I-B-E-O-N? Givon is um, G-I-V-O-N. Givon. Yeah, because the people of Gibeon came to Joshua and the Jews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Givonim, absolutely. We need yeah, your help. Yeah. Is this the same group? And this they tricked not, the Jews? This is a place called Givonim. Uh, yeah, oh, but, okay. but presumably, yes, they were people, they were lived in Israel and they tricked them and they pretended to be, uh, then, yeah, and they converted them at the end, yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Okay. okay, so now let's do for a second, it's very an interesting uh also, I just want to bring this out because it's uh, I find it very interesting, this idea. Uh, this is the second Sikha and Truma 4 uh, in volume 16. 
so basically we talk about the Migdash, we just discussed it. But one of the main uh, fixtures of the Mishkan was the Mizbeach. Because remember, we learned the Rambam said you should bring offerings over there. So, how many Mizbeachs were there? There were two Mizbeachs. There was one that was in the courtyard. That's called the Mizbeach HaChitzon. That's the outer Mizbeach, right? And then, at this parsha, the parsha's Truma, it, we discuss about the Mizbeach, which stood in the courtyard. Most of the sacrifices were done on that uh Matter of fact, the sacrifices of the the animals, the birds, they were done on and sprinkled on the mizbeach, on the uh, the burnt offerings were burnt over there. Those that were burnt on the mizbeach, some went outside, but this uh, that was the main mizbeach. That was in the courtyard. Inside of the temple itself, there was a smaller mizbeach. Uh, that's called the golden mizbeach. Over there, they used to burn the incense. The incense was inside of the temple. That's called the Mizbech HaZohov, the golden Mizbech. Or sometimes it's called Mizbech HaKtoris, the incense Mizbech. Various different names, because it's all these things. In the Choshes, it was made of copper. So here, I'm going to... So what is the... The Torah says like this. Make a Mizbech of acacia wood. Gives you the dimensions. Five long, five amas long, five amas wide, square, three amas high. Fine. Then it says you make the corners, but then the Torah says you should cover it with copper. And hence, this Mizbeach is called the Mizbeach Hanachoshechs, the copper Mizbeach. The one that was inside of the temple that they burned the incense, they covered that with gold. That's called the golden mizbeach. That was a much smaller, that was inside. That was meant for the katoris. So over here the Pasuk says, You should cover it with copper. So I'm bringing out, so, so what did we look at? So let's just talk about one mizbeach. We can talk about both mizbeachs, but Let's just talk for now. Let's talk about one mizbech. Let's talk about this mizbech that was the outside. So it was covered with copper. So basically the question becomes, a mizbech which is covered with copper, what is it considered? Is it a copper mizbech or is it a wooden mizbech? You're going to ask me what's the difference. Copper can get tumay. Tuma can become tumay. Wood doesn't become tummy if it's also a nachas. I don't want to get into the whole halachic reasoning here, but I just want to bring out one idea. When you cover something with something else, so you have wood, and you cover it with copper. So how, how do we look at this, uh, at this mizbeach? So the Rebbe says that the view of uh, Beit Shammai looks on the surface. And the surface, every part of it is a copper mizbech. So we're going to consider this mizbech a copper mizbech. It's not exactly Beit it's Rabbi but it goes, but I'm just trying to take the point. When you cover something with something else, when you cover wood with copper, according to 
Beshamai, what do we see here? We see copper. If you see copper, then it's a copper mizbeach. But according to Bishilel, according to the Rabbana of Bishilel, they say no. They say we have to look. This is only a cover. A cover is not the essence. Therefore, this is really a wood mizbeach. It's a wood mizbeach that has a copper covering. What is this? Interesting. We're going to bring two examples from the Talmud. So, and we're going to see that these two ideas, do we look at something as it appears on the surface, or we got to look deeper and see really what it is? What, what is the Torah view? So here we have a look there like this. This is the Gemara in Mesechta Kesubas. The Gemara says, what do you say when you dance in front of a kala, in front of a bride? What do you say? Mazel tov. Mazel tov. And Bishamai says, you know, you praise her, and you say, as she is. If she's beautiful, you say beautiful. If she's not beautiful, you don't say she's beautiful. So he says, you say, you say as is. So Bishilil says, no. You always say a beautiful, kind kala. A bride, beautiful. So this is all the discussion. I'm reading from the Hebrew, the discussion of Gemara. So Beishamai said to Beishilil, what happens if the bride happens to be limping or blind? What are we going to say? That she's a beautiful Kalanova Hasuda? But the Torah says, you're not allowed to lie. Midvar Shekir Tirchak. You don't lie. So how could you say that she's beautiful? So Basila responds to Bishamai. Let me ask you something. So if somebody buys something in the street, so what do you do? Should you praise it in their eyes or you should degrade it in their eyes? I would say you should praise it. So this is the discussion tomorrow. So what's going on over here? Uh, doesn't Beishamai doesn't Beishamai agree that uh, if you buy something in the street uh, you should praise it? And doesn't Beishil agree that you're not allowed to say a lie? But here is the same idea. The question is, at first glance, do we judge by the first glance, or do we go in deeper? At the first glance, the kala, as she appears. So, since it's as she's appeared, so therefore, Beishamai say, yeah, we're going to say, the way she appears. But, Beishila looks different. If this person went and bought, brought home this girl, this kala for himself, he must be to him, this is a good deal. If you buy something, you don't say that it's bad because if you look at it on the outside, she looks like she has some problems over there. But when you look at it deeper, then you see the value of it. And the Rebbe brings this actually as a metaphor of all the Jewish people. Because we've actually been acquired by Hashem. So what are we going to say? That Hashem bought a... So while on the surface, you see there's some bad Jews out there. The things, the people are no good. 
But if Hashem bought it, for sure he bought something good. You can't say he bought something bad. So basically, the issue over here is, what is it really that you see? If you look at this surface, you see the faults. You see the faults of another person. You see the faults of the Kala. Because you don't look at it, you just take a general look, an overview. But when you start looking into the specifics and to the details, then you'll see that it's not so. Another example. We have the famous story in the Gemara in Talmud, which is again, Shammai and Hillel. So this one convert comes to Shammai. He says, I want you to teach me the entire Torah while I'm standing on one foot. So Shammai took a stick, a measuring stick over there, a yard stick, and he kicked him out. So he comes in front of Hillel, Hillel converted him. And again, he told him, what's hateful to you, don't do to your friend. That's the Torah, the rest is commentary. Another guy came to him, he came and he read about, these parshas. he was reading, he heard about the beautiful garments, the chosh and the aphid. So, this, this guy asked, who does get? He said, well, the coin got him. So, he wanted to convert. He says, I want to convert. I want to be a coin god. I want to have all these beautiful garments. So, it comes to me, Shammai. And he says, what are you talking about? You're not. You have to be a coin to, to be a coin god. You can't go there. He came to Hillel. He says, convert him. He converted him. And he told him, you want to be a king god? You got to first learn the ways of the war. So at the end, he didn't want to become, he converted him. He didn't want to become a king god. And the third thing happened, uh, What was the third thing? Uh, uh, what was the third? But in any event, there was a, there was a third third case over there. Uh, but in any event, Is that teaching me on one foot. Yeah, we went that. Yeah. Uh, and the coin Godel. Yeah. Uh, 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 he wanted to be a coin Godel. That you were going to tell the joke. In any event, um, let me just see here. Uh, so. The first one is... Um, he wanted to only believe the Torah, written Torah, not the oral Torah. So again, the same same thing happened over there. But in any event, so he, he chased them out. So the Rebbe asked, but it doesn't really add up. We know we don't accept converts so easily. And if a person has an ulterior motive because he wants to become a convert, we're not going to accept him. So how is it that Hillel was ready to accept him and he converted him 
Well, we know that that's, that's not something that we need to do. And here again is the same idea. The idea is, it depends. If you look at the superficially, yeah, what did the guy ask? He asked, all these three converts asked things that are not worthy of becoming uh, converted. They're, they, However, and therefore, Shammai pushed him away. However, Hillel, he looked deeper. He realized the reason that they were asking this question or they wanted these wants, what they were asking, wasn't out of uh, a sense of not being serious. That was because they didn't know. They weren't educated enough. So he looked at it in a deeper way. That's how the Rebbe lines up all the various and many various more places in the Talmud and the Gemara. But the point here is, what, what is the lesson from this? The Rebbe takes out from this is that we should always look, the Allah is like hill, of course, we should always look deeper. If we see a Jew, we see somebody struggling, we see somebody is not living up, we see a student, we shouldn't just look at the surface. It's very easy to write somebody off and say, well, they're no good. If we look deeper and we... Uh, See, even Hillel looks like he did against Halacha. He was converting people. He shouldn't have. But because he was able to see down and deeper, he was able to come to a better conclusion than that. All right, we'll keep it a little shorter today. We'll leave it today at this. I hope we learned something over here. Absolutely. Thank you, Rabbi. I, I guess 